Cambridge Ideas, transforming tomorrow. I'm Mike Younger and you're listening to the 2009 Cambridge Festival of Ideas. In this talk we ask, how can we best encourage social mobility in the UK? How can we counter the vested interests among the middle and upper classes in protecting the status quo? What's holding us back? Is it the education system, family aspirations or just prejudice? On the panel is Brenda King, Chief Executive of AC Diversity, an organisation dedicated to the advancement of African and Caribbean students. Professor Diane Ray from the Faculty of Education at the University of Cambridge. Joe Baden, Manager of the Open Book Programme at Goldsmiths, University of London. And Anastasia Duval, Head of Family and Education at Think Tank Civitas. So let's go inside the Mill Lane Lecture Room here in Cambridge and hear our first speaker, Professor Diane Ray. Social mobility has a powerful symbolic resonance in English society, but in reality it's largely a fallacy, much desired and sought after, particularly in the rhetoric of politicians, but rarely realised. For example, less than 12% of Cambridge graduates come from working-class backgrounds. One thing has become clear, in spite of all the widening access and participation initiatives, is that yet more initiatives skimming across the surface of the problem is not the best way to encourage social mobility. More fundamental things need to change about English society. And as I've argued in earlier work, greater levels of equality in wider society are key to more effective social mobility. The class polarisation in English society and the growing gap between the rich and the poor contribute to undermining processes of social mobility, making the movement between social classes difficult, painful even. Because we live in such a hierarchical society, differences between people in different socio-economic groupings are wide and make movement more difficult than in more equitable societies, such as, for example, Japan and Sweden. We need to reduce the investment in staying put for both the working and the middle classes, and that will only start to happen when status and economic differentials between the classes are reduced. Also, in an intensely competitive, market-driven society, such as our own, there's more territorialism. Individuals both fight for and defend social space. So social mobility is above all relational. We can't all be upper or even middle class. And in a society with more graduates than graduate jobs, in order to have movement up, there has to be corresponding movement down. Current initiatives to encourage social mobility focus exclusively on the working classes neglecting the relational aspects of social mobility and conveniently overlooking the fact that we middle classes work tooth and nail to defend our social reproduction. So whenever working class attainment improves, which it has been doing steadily over a long period, the middle classes also advance and relative attainments remain unchanged. In fact, in a recent article, Tony Giddens goes so far as to say working-class social mobility will depend on capping middle-class progress. Boosting working-class children's educational attainments will not result in increased upward mobility if the middle classes go on maintaining their lead. 
If policy concentrates on the working classes alone, it has very limited chances of success because the middle and upper classes will always find ways of keeping ahead. So I'd argue that the first stage in encouraging social mobility is to open out the debate from one that primarily positions social mobility simplistically in mechanistic technicist terms to recognising it as a complex psychosocial process that always involves losses as well as gains for those on the way up as well as those on the way down. There is a painfulness in attempting to leave one sort of life behind and psychological risks in trying to establish another. We need to understand social processes before we can change them. Currently, policymakers and politicians are focusing on getting the unemployed into work and more students, particularly working class ones, into higher education. But I would argue that an oversimplified focus on two points on a much wider continuum is no way to tackle social mobility. More people doing poorly paid, casualised work is no answer, any less than producing yet more graduates for an already flooded graduate labour market. So I would start with some basic systemic interventions. I'd raise minimum pay. I'd put a cap on top pay, and in particular all those bonuses, introduce a wealth tax, and try and decrease the ratio of top pay levels to average pay from its current ratio of 480 to 1 to something more like 50 to 1, which it was about 30 years ago, so that the underlying economic conditions are more conducive to social mobility. In more equal societies, it's easier to climb up and the social penalties for slipping down are less. And I'm not saying that schools don't make a difference. Of course they do, just not anything like the extent that politicians claim that they do. So in relation to the educational system, I'd remove any state subsidies to private schools and use that money to substantially improve teacher-student ratios in the state sector. And I would also raise state teachers' pay, particularly in predominantly working-class schools, in order to attract impressive subject specialists into such schools. As the Social Mobility Report points out, evidence suggests teachers can have a significant impact on future potential, but the best qualified teachers are less likely to be in predominantly working-class schools. And I would also try and ensure that early years initiatives actually reach those they're supposed to target. Current research on Sure Start indicates that many working-class mothers feel labelled and patronised by the scheme, leaving middle-class mothers to reap the benefits of extra provision and funding. But it's not just working-class schools, but working-class neighbourhoods and communities that need to be revitalised and reinvigorated. And here, too, an important step is improving resourcing. But I would argue that, first of all, we have to look beyond the myths of social mobility and meritocracy, reassuring for us middle classes and misleading for the working classes to focus on the problem of economic inequality that remains the biggest barrier to social mobility. As long as we have a society where people can pay to maintain privilege 
and high social status, social mobility will always be low. If we are serious as opposed to tokenistic about social mobility, then as a society we're going to need to recognise the huge injustice that economic inequality in English society constitutes and make some really concerted attempts to abolish poverty, but also to get rid of, misquoting Peter Mandelson, the filthy rich. The fallacy for too long is that the super-rich are what the rest of us should be aiming for, our role models, when increasingly the evidence shows that they are one of the main stumbling blocks to a more socially mobile society. Thank you. A non-contentious and middle-of-the-way beginning, obviously, from (laughs) Diane. We now move to Anastasia. Thank you very much. I think, in many ways, I want to focus on two, what I consider to be key policy areas which need focusing on, and are very practical. And one I would see as a more short-term approach, and the other as a more long-term approach. Starting with a long-term approach, it's education. The the short-term approach is getting people into work, but it's not just about getting people into work, it's also about underemployment and underpaid employment, but basically issues around low income and work. Now, clearly, both those ideas within the social mobility debate are not remotely radical, and nor have they been ignored by this government, at least, but also by governments in the past. Nevertheless, I feel personally, at least, that there are areas within both education policy and within work, employment and welfare policy which are not as effective as they might be, and that it's these particular policies which we need to focus on in order to propagate, in order to promote and foster more social mobility. So starting with education, and I think this is terribly important, and I agree absolutely that it isn't a panacea, Yet there is more that can be done, and one of the very important interfaces at the moment between income inequality and weaknesses within the education system is the achievement gap that we see in schools. And it's for this reason in particular, as we know that the achievement gap increases as children get older, that two things I think are particularly important. One is early years provision that's really good quality, not tokenistic good quality, not invested at in half the percent that is invested in the Nordic countries but attempts to be Nordic style, but where professionals who are well-trained and crucially well-paid are put into early years and where it's taken really seriously because that makes an enormous difference in terms of the achievement gap and then in terms of later life chances and, of course, social mobility. The other very important area and what I really want to focus on is primary education. I think there has been a boost to primary education under this government, yet In many ways, it isn't seen as perhaps quite as significant as it is. And in my view, if you don't get it right in primary education, it's going to be very difficult and not nearly as effective using redemptive strategies to get it right in terms of life chances in secondary school. And I'd say, even though there has been greater investment in primary education, which is great, there isn't nearly enough investment, but even a lot of investment doesn't necessarily mean the right policies. I think many of the issues at the moment in in primary schools are to do with teachers not being able to respond to their pupils. And there are several key reasons for this, and I think the primary review actually drew a lot of attention to many of these. I say probably the biggest, or one of the biggest, is 
oversized classes, particularly in infant classes. This is literally about teachers not being able to respond to the needs of their pupils. Another one is an overpacked curriculum where there isn't enough opportunity for consolidation in terms of what's being taught, but it's constantly moving on to the next thing. Another is too much prescription from Whitehall, which means, again, you're not able to respond to the needs of the pupils in front of you. You're responding to the needs of the DCSF. Testing is another one, a big issue which came up in the primary review. Again, this is about responding to political needs and not about responding actually to what your children in your class and in your school need. And this has been very difficult partly because of the way that national accountability, basically how the government is doing, has been connected completely wrongly to how Johnny in Class 6 is doing. And that crucially needs to be severed if we are able to respond to children's needs. Finally, bureaucratic accountability mechanisms, often for very good reasons, intentions anyway, are actually distracting a lot of teachers from truly being able to respond to the needs of their pupils. For example, by being stuck in an office filling in paperwork rather than being able to talk to parents when they come into the classroom to pick up their kids. For me, in a way, the bottom line, the recurring theme in terms of the lack of responsiveness that's allowed in schools is that not enough professionalism is allowed to teachers, that it is too much about seeing teachers as automatons who disseminate rather than professionals who respond in a professional way to those people who are sitting in front of them. And I think the current emphasis on leadership at the moment, whilst welcome, again seems to be repeating that mistake. It's about heads, but the classroom teacher seems to be much less relevant than clearly they are. Now, unless we tackle these issues in primary school, we are going to continue seeing the achievement gap which we're seeing today, the gulf which we're seeing today. I'm not saying that that gulf could ever be closed in education, but at least it could be narrowed. Because by the time you get to secondary school and you're not able to access the secondary curriculum, you've got much less scope of being able to catch up. And that's where life chances and social mobility in particular are likely to slip away. And that brings me on to needs. So young people who are not in education, not in training and not in employment. And one of the big disappointments, I think, under the Labour government has seen, has, has been the increase in the number of needs, not now, but at a time when there were more jobs, when we weren't in an economic downturn as we are now, yet there wasn't the emphasis. And this was particularly disappointing because it exposed not just the weaknesses within the education system, but also the weaknesses within the welfare system and the emphasis or lack of emphasis on work. And in terms of income inequality, clearly there's a very strong case for looking at the top incomes in terms of narrowing the gap as well as the bottom. And I think to do that, we do need to look at much better regulation, as we've seen spectacularly in the banking world, but also much higher taxation. So we are taxing the richest, and also we're going to need that money, not just now, but particularly for things like education and also in-work welfare policy. But I nevertheless do feel that we need to emphasise particularly those on the lowest incomes and how we can enable them to be able to be more socially mobile. And this isn't just about unemployment, but also underemployment and particularly underpaid employment. And that, again, I agree with Diane, is about <coughs> raising the minimum wage. There are going to be jobs which people are going to be doing. Let's not pretend there aren't, but let's raise the wages so that actually they're more worthwhile. 
But I think it's crucial that we don't underestimate the importance of work. Whilst I completely understand short-term strategies, particularly in relation to child poverty, to alleviate poverty in the immediate sense, there is no getting away from the detrimental impact in terms of morale, never mind social mobility, on children but also on adults' morale, the lack of routine of not having work. And I think particularly at a time when there are fewer jobs, it's terribly important that we do look at rather dramatic things like work creation, job creation, because of the importance of work. And if we do have truly effective welfare-to-work policy, it needs to be about bridges, not about gangplanks, so not about simply cutting welfare, but actually perhaps spending the same amount, if not more, on in-work subsidy. But the emphasis is on work because of the progress it allows people when they do have that routine, they do have greater chances for, mo for mobility and the sense of morale that it gives. <coughs> so... In relation to work, is clearly education in the sense of enabling young people to go into work to have the best chances to go into work, but also a scenario in the welfare system which makes work pay, which means that people are able to go to work because there's affordable, good quality childcare, which is good for the life chances of their children, and also means that they aren't forfeiting their whole salary on childcare. And we must remember that both of these strategies are going to be necessary, particularly in a time of recession. It isn't the time to cut expenditure on education. It is the time to think smartly about expenditure, but not about cuts. And it is, when there are fewer jobs, actually particularly crucial in terms of social mobility to make sure that people can be in work and that we really do foster and support that. Thank you. You're listening to the 2009 Cambridge Festival of Ideas. We're discussing how can we best encourage social mobility in the UK. Next to speak is Brenda King. Thanks very much for that. So how can we best encourage social mobility? When I was asked, and asked by Cambridge University, it was a, a very daunting because I know um, this is where the most socially mobile come to. And I do quite a lot of work with um, children who are underrepresented in institutions such as these and underrepresented in the high-paid jobs that were alluded to earlier. Now, we all know that uh, these underrepresented students, uh, young people, come from working-class backgrounds, low-income backgrounds, and they tend to perform worse in school, they stay to stand in school for a shorter space of time, and as Anastasia said, during the economic boom for the past 10 years, them and their families were excluded from a lot of the fruits of that economic boom. So they were out of work, or if they were in work, they were in low-income um, jobs. So the difficulty with social mobility is how do you enthuse a child who is in a household where either no one works for that generation or the generation before, or they watch as their families struggle to make ends meet and make ends meet day to day. 
How do you get those families involved to take advantage of a number of the schemes that are in place? And you're quite right, the government has produced quite um, a number of schemes, and as Diane has said, it seems to be the middle classes who have benefited from a lot of these schemes, and that's because they tend to have the knowledge and the time to access them. So how is this done? Do we need schools with similar resources and schools with common curricula? I don't think so. I think what we should focus on is the outcomes from the educational process. And I think this is what Anastasia was um, alluding to. And the ability of schools to develop young people to their fullest potential, no matter their background, no matter their talents. And that it should be personal and appropriate and beneficial. And in order to do that, we need resources in schools, the right types of resources and the right type of information. What I find amazing with the students on our programme is the sheer lack of information. Not that they don't aspire. Many want to be engineers. Many want to come to the top research universities. But the information they get to get there is, quite frankly, appalling. They do not get the information they need. And a lot of the times, they're pushed down into courses which would not only not get them into these sorts of places, but would not get them the jobs that they're looking for in this highly competitive environment. Now, we run a program where we have mentors from firms matched with our students who come from state schools which are in disadvantaged areas. And I have to say, it's not just about education, it's about social skills as well. There are things that we know um, because through our parents or our social background that we expect these young people to know. The importance of being punctual, the importance to be dressed appropriately at the right time, the importance of sitting up straight and looking interested. All of these little social skills that they don't have. So if we are going to bridge this social mobility gap, it's not just sufficient that they do the right courses, that they get the right grades, and that is very important, but they have to get through the interview process here or at their sixth form colleges, etc. So there is quite a lot of resources that are needed. And it's quite paradoxical that in this country, the students who get most of the resources placed, or the, because their parents can afford to pay, are the ones who have the access to these social skills as well as the information that is required. So what I want to say is that to get, if we are going to remove these inequalities and inequities in the social, economic, and economic fairs to reverse, um, to try to encourage social mobility, I think we need to step back and think about the types 
of resources that are needed in terms of not in terms of the types of teachers we have in schools, in types of the information provided um, to these students. So we're talking about more resources and not less. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Next to speak is Joe Baden. To me, the concept of social mobility is, is a living anachronism. We shouldn't be talking about the best way uh, to encourage social mobility. What we should be talking about is the best way to encourage social equality. Um, within, within the old concept of, of social mobility, as far as I'm concerned, there's some, some, some sort of an acceptance of... Uh, an imp uh, implicit within the whole concept is, is the idea that there is... Uh, that, that we accept the sort of economic dom dominance of middle-class culture. Um, I don't, sorry. Uh, I, I aspired, when, when I've, I've aspired to have a, a better education, I've aspired to have the ability to look after my family and to provide for my family. I've never aspired to being middle class. Uh, that might, might, some people might find that strange, but it's the truth. Um, so as I say, I think that there's, there's a certain, there's a certain uh, uh, problem with the question to start off with. I also think that what we've got to look at is the way that we address... For me, the project I work for, the projects I work for, we, we, we encourage people in the university, we encourage people to aspire to fulfil their academic potential, take their academic potential as far as they can. There's no sort of motive other than to offer the best service that we can. We don't ask, and that's an education. It's education for education's sake. Now, that's, that's uh, I think, quite an alien concept when we talk about working-class people. Um, education has always, when, when we talk about working-class people, education has always got an economic imperative. Um, and it's interesting when we, we, we talk about social engineering, there's a lot, of, a lot of talk of social engineering. I'm always talking about it, what you're doing in, in, in widening participation, it's the amount of social engineering... Well, is it not social engineering when we get the army going in the schools in, in, in inner city, city areas, trying to encourage them to join the army because they can get a trade? Might get blown up while you're doing it. Is it not social engineering when when I think about when, when you think about? I mean, I mean, what what? I mean, really, what a, 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 an indictment of our education system. I actually I actually felt more comfortable in a police cell than I did sitting in a seminar room with other students. I knew how to carry myself. When the first time I walked onto the prisons, prison wing, uh, uh, I knew how to carry myself. I knew how to talk to people. I knew what I, what, what, I, what I needed to say. When I walked into university, it was a completely different culture. And again, one of the problems I think that we have is we're talking about, earlier we were talking about what we need to teach people how to present themselves, blah, blah, blah. And what we're doing is we're saying what we've got to do is change the individuals to fit the institutions. Our institutions are meant to serve everyone in society, not one demographic group. And so what we need to be doing is trying to change our institutions to serve the whole of our community, not the other way around. So what we're constantly trying to do is fit square pegs into round holes. The widening participation um, programme, that was, that was, I think, is a massive opportunity, has had been a massive opportunity 
to really address this old idea of, of, of trying to create a, a more equal society. Um, but it's, it, it seems to become almost like, I think in, in, in the worst cases it's become the most expensive sort of homework club in history. Uh, it's not it's not actually it's based my, my, uh, most widening participation um, has, has, has been based on a sort of very middle class academic perspective of what working class people need and it's based on um, research that has been going on for years and years and years and years and years yeah? and has failed for years and years and years and years and years and yet we're still doing exactly the same things. We've got very middle class, nothing wrong with middle class students, but we've got very middle class students walking into working class schools and telling working class kids that they really want to go to university. Now, if they'd have come, I went to school in the Old Kent Road. If I'd had a very middle class kid come into me and tell me about how great it was at university, and you, I'd say, what, what on earth have you got to do with, with me? What, what, what relevance? And, and what that would do is reinforce everything that I already believed about university. Now, there's some good stuff going on. There really is some good stuff going on. But there's also some very... Um, if you want, it's, it's based on a, a sort of cultural imperialism. Yeah, there's a sort of paternalistic element to it. What we're trying to do is, is, is create a world full of middle-class uh, liberals, academic liberals, if you like. Yeah? I ain't got a problem with some of my best friends are middle class, <laughs> well, middle class academic liberals. Um, but there are real problems. And, and, and for example, I've, I've, I've mentioned before when I've, when I've, when I've spoken, that I've worked with widening participation, um, people who work in widening participation, who talk about daily mirror readers. Yeah? I've, I've worked with people who, who take the mickey out of chav clothing. Who look at people and go, look, 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 wow, and, and, and ridicule the way working class kids dress. So I'd, I'd tend to wear as much burberry in work as I possibly can. Um, I've worked with people who, I've, I worked with one fella, I was in an office, yeah, I was, I was sitting, sitting, sitting in my office, and this bloke's job was to go out and encourage working class kids into higher education, yeah. That was his sole purpose, that was what he was getting paid for. Bloke walked in with some paper, a, a delivery driver walked in with some paper. I said, where do you want your paper, mate? I said, could you stick it over there for me, please, mate? When he went out, the bloke whose sole job it was was to, to go out and encourage working-class kids into education, got up and started walking around the office going, where do you want it, mate? Where do you want it, mate? Where do you want it, mate? Yeah, so, so what we're looking at here is we're talking about a, a, a system where you've got people who are representing a system who often don't like the way working-class people dress, really kill the things they read, um, take the mickey out of programmes they watch, don't like their clothes, think their clothes aesthetically are, are, are not what they should be. Yeah? And then have the audacity to go away and discuss why, talk, why it's so difficult to reach working class people. Why don't these working class people come to us? And then they have the, the audacity to call us hard to reach. <laughs> We're hard to reach. It's not them doing their job wrong. It's not them who, who's... who's whose procedures and, and, and are wrong. It's us. We're wrong. We're the ones who are doing it wrong. So I think there's a great need... Sorry, am I going to... There's a great need for us to sort of address it. And, and I think, as far as I'm concerned, um, the way to achieve social equality is through education. It is through encouraging people to go on to get a degree. To, to, 
Reece, when I was at Cambridge last time, I was, I was, I've done a little talk at Cambridge, and someone said to me, um, but, there's, there's, but, but there's people with PhDs who are cleaning toilets. And I was like, wonderful. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> Isn't, that, Isn't that a wonderful thing? People cleaning toilets with PhDs. I think this, problem, this person might have had a problem with the fact that they might have known more about Adam Smith than they did. I'm not sure. I think they was uh, a little bit uncomfortable with the fact that they knew toilet cleaners with, with um, PhDs. To me, that's great. As long as that person who has got the PhD and is a toilet cleaner is not a toilet cleaner because of the family they came from. Yeah? If, 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 if everyone had PhDs, what a wonderful society we'd live in. What a wonderful democracy we'd have. If education was about education, what a wonderful place it would be. Um, so I have real problems with the whole sort of idea of social mobility. I've never wanted to be middle class. Um, my reason for being is not money, I must admit, anymore. It used to be. Uh, I, my reason for being is still Milwaukee. <laughs> I must um, and, and going back to that whole thing around, around uh, when, when we talk about social engineering, when we talk about... And I've said before, time and time again, if we want to talk about social engineering, if you really want to see social engineering at work, yeah, come to some of the estates in south-east London that I've lived on. Or go to my site. Or go to Glasgow. Or go to Nottingham. Pick an inner city, wherever you want. And have a walk around. And have a look at the estates. And have a look at the way people are living and what the kids are doing to each other. And then come along to the graveyards in, around, surrounding those areas. And look at the ages of the gravestones, on the gravestones, of people who, who, are, who are shooting each other, little kids who are shooting each other, who are dying because of heroin abuse, who are dying because of drug abuse. And that is social engineering, engineering on a massive scale. That is social engineering on a massive scale. So what I think we need to be doing, personally, to actually encourage social equality, is to have an education system that is based on the culture of the people who are actually looking, so the schools are based in their own cultures and, and, and the universities are accessible to everyone, not just accessible to a small group of people. We have a lot of people at our place who come in who feel so uncomfortable with Suntree when they first get there, but we've, we've got a safe haven for them, which is the project. Um, and those people, as a consequence of what they do, if you want, move, move on as far as, their, as far as their careers are concerned and everything else. They're all still very, very working-class people and don't want to be anything else. Um, so, basically, I think we need to start looking at social policy, who's developing social policy, where social policy uh, is leading, some of, the, some of the assumptions that lie behind social policy and some of the motivation behind social policy. Um, and I think everything needs to be deconstructed. I think we need to start again, basically. Sorry. <laughs> Joe, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.